0: Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Thinking Christian Podcast. This is Dane, your host. Thank you for joining me today. If you'd like to know more about me or this podcast, just go to thethinkingchristian.us. That will take you to my website. There you'll find all previously released podcasts. You can listen to them, download them, interact with them, comment on them, um, there's also some other information about me and this podcast on that website. Feel free to browse. You can also subscribe to this podcast right from the website. Just go in and put your email address, your name in, hit the submit button on the home page, and you, uh, you will, have, will have subscribed, which means that when a new podcast or an update to the website is made, you will get an email notification right in your inbox. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on the other platforms. You can do that at Apple iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Android, or just download your favorite podcasting app. and There you can subscribe to the podcast. And please consider uh, rating the podcast if you like it. Uh, if your uh, particular platform gives you an opportunity to, to rate it, please do. I would appreciate that a lot. That would be a, a help to me. Okay, well, let's jump into today's podcast. This is sort of part two of uh, what I talked about last week's podcast. I will tell you, though, that last week I wasn't intending to do a part two. Uh, After the podcast was released, I had some conversations with my friend Denise, and the idea of John chapter six came up in relationship to this idea and the concept that I was talking about. And I thought, well, you know what, that would make a good um, a good topic for the next one. While I'm on the subject, while it's in fresh in some people's minds, let me go to John chapter 6. And so today, sort of part two, I want to talk about the Eucharist and John chapter 6. Now, the Eucharist is another name for communion. If you're uh, a non-Catholic like me, you may not be real familiar with the word Eucharist. Uh, that just means Thanksgiving, and that's a name that you will find in not just Roman Catholic circles, but often in, in some um, uh, denominations, they still use the word Eucharist uh, to describe communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, the Last Supper, something like that, however you want to describe it. And um, there there is a, there is a, a difference between uh, I'd say a major difference between how Christians view the Eucharist or communion. And in last week, I talked about that a little bit. In last week's uh, podcast, I talked about the Eucharist and asked the question, is this? Is it literally the, the blood and literally the body of Christ? Now, again, if you're not Roman Catholic, you might wonder what I'm talking about. For the most part, Protestants see the elements with the wafer and the cup as only representing the body and the blood of Christ. Roman Catholics and some uh, Protestants also view, though, that the uh, wafer and the cup taken in communion or Eucharist not just represent, but they are literally, or they become literally, now not figuratively, and that's important, they they literally become the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And I talked about that a little bit last week as I introduced the subject. And, um, and so... You know the the question might become or might be asked. Then what is it? Now I talked about it a little bit last week, like I said, but this week I want to talk about John chapter six because uh, those who feel that the wafers and the cup that they do become the body and blood, literally not figuratively, but literally the body and blood of Christ during communion or during the Eucharist, generally rely on John chapter 6 as a way to explain their belief. Now, I'm very familiar with John chapter 6, and I'm also familiar, I believe, with the Roman Catholic arguments uh, made from this chapter. And uh, I, I respect them. I mean, people are certainly welcome to feel however they want to, and I have my opinions on it, and I'm going to describe my opinions, and I, I'm not necessarily speaking for all Protestants out there or non-Catholics as I talk about John chapter 6. I'm just talking about what I see and what I feel and how I reach my conclusions on John chapter 6. If you're not familiar with John chapter 6, it's a great chapter. <laughs> of course, all the Bible's <laughs> filled with great chapters, but um, a lot goes, goes on there. It starts off with Jesus uh, feeding the multitude. Um, the people were, were there, and they were hungry, and Jesus took a small boy's lunch, and from that lunch, he blessed it, broke the bread and the fish, passed it out, and, and the people were filled. In fact, it was such a, a fantastic miracle, and the people had become so exercised by it that they really wanted to force Jesus to become their king. Now, Jesus sensed what was going on, and he wasn't interested in becoming their political king, and so he kind of retreated quietly, The crowd was dis- and the crowd was dispersed. The next day, Jesus had crossed over the Sea of Galilee, and the next day, the crowd caught up to him. And immediately the tone is changes. In verse 22. I mean you could just see, it, it, the, the tone of this is completely different than the, than the day before. The day before, you know the crowds are with Jesus. Jesus seems to be with them. Everything is hunky-dory. But in um, John chapter 22 two uh, six, John chapter six, verse 22, the tide changes, and the feeling is different. And I think the reason why is because when the people came to Jesus, they wanted to eat again. That's what they were interested in doing. They were interested in more food. He had fed them the day before, and they came to him to be fed again. And, um, you know, Jesus is not a, a genie in a lamp. You don't just rub the lamp and make your wish, and genie, and Jesus produces it like a genie. And I think he was put off by their approach. I think his his hopes for the people had been that they would seek him out the next day and say, Well, that was a fantastic miracle. You truly are from God. Now teach us the ways of God. You know, show us how to become followers of God. But they didn't. They actually came out and they wanted to be fed again. And instantly he, he seems to be at odds with them. And he points this out, you know, you're only here for food. And he says to them in verse 27, don't labor for the food that perishes, but labor or, or work for the food that endures to eternal life. And um, they ask him in verse 28, they said, well, what are the works of God then? If we're supposed to work the works of God, what are those works? Uh, which is an interesting and good question. And Jesus at verse 29, very important verse here, uh, which I think begins to set the tone for John chapter six or the remaining part of John chapter six. Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe, that you believe in him whom he sent. And so Jesus seems to be making the point, here's what work you can do. Here's what God is interested in having you do. He wants you to believe now, the reason why I'm stressing that is because he makes this point over and over again in John chapter 6. And, you know, because the people say, well, you know, what sign you can perform that we can believe? Well, okay, okay we want to believe, but what sign? You know, And, and they said, well, you know, hey, wink, wink, our fathers ate manna in the desert. Again, they're, they're just asking for more food. And Jesus at this point, and I think this is important, again they came to him for food and so you, and he's not going to give them the literal food now he's going to give them a lesson but he's going to use this idea of food he takes the subject that they have brought up food they want something to eat and he uses that as a way to explain something so he's 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 taken on this 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 um oh, this suggestion for food um and he's and he's going to work with it, which is, is what he did. Oftentimes, you know, when somebody came to him with something, he 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 took that and just kind of turned it around into a spiritual lesson. Um, and so, uh, you know, they 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 asked for food, and he said, "You know what? Uh, Moses gave you the the manna from heaven, the bread from Hannah, but my father gives you tr- true bread." And they said, "Okay, well, we want that bread." And now, Jesus is not—I don't believe—talking about bread in sense of, you know, that which is pounded out from wheat and flour and, you know, and and sugar and all the things that go into bread. But he's he's talking about something else because he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Now, I believe that Jesus is making a metaphor here. There's many metaphors in the book of John, especially, you know, I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. Um, I am the bread of life. Uh, I am uh, the light of the world. You know, I I am the true vine. He says that is all in the gospel of John. He uses these metaphors for himself. And this is just another metaphor. He says, I am the bread of life. And if you, if you, um, and he who comes to me will never hunger. Believe verse 30, there it is. Verse 35. Again, if you believe You'll never thirst. Um, and so he's, he's trying to prompt them to believe. Uh, in fact, verse 36, the very next verse, he's complaining that they don't believe. He said, you've seen me and yet you don't believe. So again, his problem is, and I think this is the point, this is the whole point of John chapter 6 from verse 22 on, is that Jesus is pleading for their belief I don't think he's pleading for them to participate in communion or to participate in the Eucharist. He's pleading for them to believe. Um, that happens again in verse 40. He said, And this is the will of him, God who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and he will raise them up on the last day. Remember that phrase. So again, he's, he's saying, he's asking for the belief. He said, If you just believe in me, you'll live forever. Now they're still looking for bread, and he's using this as a way to talk about what's what's um, you know what he's trying to offer them. He's not going to offer them food again; It's just not going to happen. What he's trying to get them to understand is is a spiritual reality. Now I, I got to pause at this point to say that this is what the Book of John <laughs> repeatedly shows us, and that is that Jesus says something he's taken literally. And he's taken wrongly. In other words, people hear his words and they assume wrongly that he that he means it literally. This happens over and over and over in the book of John, and I believe it's happening here in John chapter six. Let me give you an example, or a couple of examples. In John chapter two, Jesus tells the Pharisees, said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it back up. And they scoffed at him. They said, It took forty six years to build this temple. Now, of course, Jesus didn't mean the temple, the building in Jerusalem. But he, he said something to them. He, he meant something by it. But they, the problem is they took him literally. Okay? And that's, that's, that's a reoccurring theme. Just remember that this is a reoccurring theme in the Gospel of John. He says something, and the mistake is to take him literally. John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, uh, You will not see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Now, what's Nicodemus' response to that? Well, he takes him literally. He says, "Well, how can a man who's old get back into his mother's womb?" You know, he hears the words and he's he, he's really trying to figure it out, but he takes him literally. And Jesus corrects him. It's it's not not to be understood literally. On the very next chapter, John chapter four, Jesus is talking at the woman or to the woman at the well. And uh, he says, if you drink of the water that I give you, he, again, he's using this opportunity and what's going on right now to talk about something spiritual. He says, if you drink of the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. And she says, well, how now I'm paraphrasing. How are you going to get that water? You, know, you don't have a rope. This well is deep. You don't have a bucket. She took him literally. And that was a problem. He didn't intend for this to be taken literally. He's talking about something on a spiritual level. And the mistake is, He's being taken literally. This happens again in John chapter eight. He tells the the uh, Pharisees, "You are of your your father the devil. Your, your dad's Satan." And you know, they're of course they're quite upset by that. But they said, "No, our father's Abraham." And Jesus even says, "I know that your father's Abraham, but you don't do his works." In other words, you're taking me literally. <laughs> I know you. I know who your ancestor is. I know that very clear. But your spiritual father is Satan. And that's the point he was trying to make. Again, he said something, and the mistake was they took him literally. John chapter eleven, another example, and there are more. I'm just doing this off the top of my head. John chapter eleven, um, Jesus is talking about Lazarus, and he says to his disciples, "Our friend Lazarus is asleep. He's he's asleep." And the disciples seem to kind of shrug and say, "Well, if he's asleep, he'll wake up and he'll get better, right?" And Jesus said, "No, no, no, he's dead." Again, the mistake is they hear his words. And they take him literally. Now, in my opinion, a lot of Christians, Roman Catholics and Protestants, take Jesus literally here in John chapter 6, and that is their mistake. They ignore the pattern that's going on in John. They ignore the fact that Jesus is using language that is meant to be understood figuratively or meant to be understood spiritually. And the mistake is they assume it's literal. And this, I believe, is a huge error. Uh, it ignores what's been going on here. Jesus has already made it clear in a couple of verses as we walk through this chapter three times. He's asking them for their belief. Uh, and it's not the last time he's going to ask about this. Uh, so, so uh, he he, he, sa- he explains to them, I'm the bread of heaven. I'm, I'm the one I'm, that, that, that you have to believe in, is, I think is what he's saying. And they don't understand him. He said, how can, you, how can you come down from heaven? We know your family. We know who you are. And, and and so they're, they're kind of murmuring against him because they, they don't understand that. That's quite a, um, quite obvious. And then Jesus tells them in verse 46, he said that, oh, excuse me, verse 47, he says, most surely I say to you, he who believes, there's the word again. This is the fourth time that's happened now in this in these verses. He's talking about belief. He's asking for their belief. He's prompting them to believe. He said, he who believes in me has everlasting life. He said, this is what's going to give you life. What? Belief. And he didn't say anything about the Eucharist here. He didn't say anything about communion. In fact, at this point, the only thing we would know that gives you everlasting life, the only thing that we know that would bring you up on the last day is belief. And I think he's made that very, very clear. He says, you know, your your fathers ate bread in the wilderness. They ate manna. They're dead. Now, I think he means that Literally. Uh, they, They literally ate manna, and they are literally dead. But he says in the following verse, verse 50, this bread that I'm talking about, if you eat of it, you won't die. Now, this, I think, should be a huge cue for us to understand what he's talking about. Of course, their ancestors had literally ate bread and had literally and physically died. But Jesus says, if you eat this bread, you won't die. Now, what's he talking about? I think that a lot of our friends, our Christian friends, Roman Catholics, and even some Protestants, believe that he's talking about communion. But they see part of that as literally fulfilled, but part of that as figuratively fulfilled. Because it's true that Christians have been taking communion for the past 2,000 years, but they've been dying So Jesus can't be talking about physical death. So they they partly interpret that verse, but I think the way to understand that is he's not talking about physically eating communion. He's talking about, again, he's made this very clear, it's belief. He's asking for their belief, not for their participation in a sacrament, but their participation in a relationship with him, with his father. And then Jesus kind of makes a, a bit of a shift in this chapter. He, he's talking about eating bread and eating this bread gives you life. And then he he makes a shift in verse 51. He said, the bread I give you is my flesh. Now, I think this is where Roman Catholics say, aha, so the, now he's made it clear. Now he's talking about the Eucharist because we believe that the wafer is his, his body. And, and now he's talking about his flesh. And um, the Jews... <laughs> They make the same mistake. They think he's talking about his flesh. And they grumble. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, you know, they, this is cannibalism. They, they, they reject that idea because uh, this is not something that God would authorize. We don't eat people. And so, again, they take him literally. And, and I believe all along Jesus is almost pleading. This is spiritual. I'm asking for your belief I'm not asking you to eat anything. I'm asking you for your belief. I'm using that as an analogy. Um, Again, just like the woman at the well, when he asked her for a drink, uh, he used that as a way to kind of to, to launch off into an evangelistic conversation with her, using the, the, the concept of water and thirst to introduce spiritual truth. And this is exactly what he's doing here from the very beginning, that he's using the idea of food and bread and, and now of, of meat or flesh uh, to introduce an idea here, which I believe has all along been spiritual because he keeps asking for their belief, which is a spiritual thing. And then in verse fifty-four, well, let, let me let me just pause here for a second on something else. Um, Roman Catholics are, are quick to point out at this point, and, and I agree with them, that Jesus kind of ratchets it up a little bit because he, there's a shift in the Greek here about the language being used for for eating the flesh. And it's no longer sort of like a dinner type of eating, but kind of uh, the Greek word, and I don't uh, read Greek, but I've looked it up. It means to to munch or to grind. Um, picture now a devouring kind of meal. This is almost an impolite devouring, just kind of grinding, you know, picture a dog eating a bone, you know, just kind of really kind of grinding it. And and again, Roman Catholics will point out that this language here being used by Jesus indicates that he means he intends to be taken literally this is literally eating they'll say I, tim staples a very famous uh, excuse me a very famous roman catholic apologist makes this point that when jesus does this shift in the language he said it could be more clear that he's talking about literally eating and my question is why why would you believe that there is no principle that I'm aware of, that whenever Jesus uses harsh language, whenever he uses unique and, and uh, bold language that we're somehow to take him literally. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that almost the opposite is always true, that when Jesus launches into very harsh kind of language or grab your attention kind of language, he does not want to be taken literally, but he's trying to stress something that's important, but it, he means it figuratively for, for let me give you a few examples for example in matthew chapter 5 jesus said if your right eye causes you to sin pluck it out that's right just get, get your fingers there dig that eyeball rip it out of its socket um, if he said, if your right hand causes you to sin cut the thing off get a saw get a hacksaw just saw that right arm right, that right hand right off now that's very very harsh language you know, asking you to amputate your body or asking you to reach in and just unsurgically just kind of remove that eyeball right out of its socket. It's harsh language, but I don't know anyone in the right mind who would take that literally. You know, we don't apply this principle and say, oh, well, there Jesus used very harsh language to describe cutting your eye off. Therefore, he must really want us to pull our eyeballs out if we see if our eye leads us to sin. Not at all. In in, uh, Luke chapter 14, verse uh, 25 and following. Matter of fact, I talked about this passage a few weeks ago in a podcast. But in Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me but does not hate his mother, his father, his uh, wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, uh, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, now there's some bold language for you. I mean, there's some harshness. You have to hate them. Jesus is saying, you have got to hate them. All right? So now he's using this kind of harsh, in-your-face language. Therefore, using this principle, we have to take him literally. Correct? I mean, how 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 more explicit could he be? He said, hate. You know, that's pretty explicit. And yet no one understands him that way, or at least no one in their right mind should understand him that way. Because this principle doesn't exist. We don't assume just because jesus is using very harsh and unique language here of, of uh, grinding away on his flesh that he must he must be talking about the eucharist i mean i <laughs> i don't see it there um in fact i see the opposite is true when he uses this type of language the scriptures would indicate that he is using figurative language and i believe all along that's exactly what he's been using and in verse 54 I think it's evident what he's saying. Because he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my li- blood has eternal life. What is, has what is he already talked about that leads to eternal life? Verse 47, he said, he who believes has everlasting life. It's the same thing. So he's talking earlier. He says, he who believes has eternal life. And now, what gives us eternal life? Eating flesh and drinking blood. It's obvious to me, I believe, that eating flesh and drinking blood is a metaphor for believing. Jesus often used metaphors, and he adds another phrase, which he had already introduced. He said, and I will raise him up on the last day. Who is he raised up? Well, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood. Well, what does that mean? Well, earlier in the very same chapter, he already described the people who would be raised up on the last day, verse 40, and that is those people who believe. And so I see eating my flesh and drinking my blood as a very in-your-face, very harsh way, a very um, uh, hyperbolic metaphor for belief. Jesus is asking for radical belief, not nominal belief. I mean, this is radical. This is the dog gnawing on the bone. This is a radical belief that he's asking for. And, um, you know... I, I'm going to kind of make a a bold statement that might surprise some of you, and and that is that John chapter 6, in my opinion, and you can quote me on this, John chapter 6 is not even about the Eucharist. John chapter 6 is not about communion. And I've heard both Roman Catholics and some some Protestants suggest that it is. I don't see it, and I don't see how that it could be, because... um, in John chapter six verse four we, we said that the Passover of the Jews was near. So this was this event in John chapter six was very near the Passover. But this is not the final Passover. In other words, this is one full year, at least one full year, before Jesus instituted the Eucharist or instituted communion at the Last Supper. Remember he did that during the Passover meal in the upper room he was celebrating Passover with his disciples and during that meal he kind of changed things us and changed things up and brought us what we call communion or the Lord's Supper like Eucharist but the events in John chapter 6 occur one full year before any of that is introduced and therefore, if Jesus is talking about in John chapter six, if he's really referring to the Eucharist, which gives us life, that uh, the Eucharist is is uh, my literal bo- body and blood, then he would be the only person who would understand what he's talking about. There would be no one present who would even have a clue what he's referring to—not a clue, because that's a full year away from that this event. I mean, it's not like Matthew is going to lean over to Thomas and say, Tom, what's he you talking about? I don't understand. And, and Thomas says, oh, come on, Matt, don't you understand it? He's talking about the Eucharist. I mean, that's not going to happen. No one knows it. And I think that's a huge, huge problem for anyone who insists that John chapter 6 is about the Eucharist. Because if your method of interpretation, if you have a method that you're applying to a passage, and that method results in interpretation of a passage... Which um, reveals that the original hearers or the original readers of the passage didn 't know what was going on and couldn 't have understood it, then you have a wrong method of interpretation uh, it, it has to be the completely the opposite. Our method of interpretation has to include the fact that the original hearers or readers or whatever you know whatever it is if it 's written or if it 's heard that that the original hearers. They had to have an understanding. In other words, there was there was something meant for them, and if Jesus here is talking about the Eucharist, no one would even have a clue. And and I I believe that's a good indicator. That's not the subject here. Now they would have a clue about belief because he's he's asked for the belief a lot, and he's encouraged people to trust him. Can encourage people to put their faith him. That they could understand. Now, whether they do or not, another another point. But they could understand that. But there's no way possible for them to even un- begin to understand that he's talking about an event that happens one full year later. Um, now, uh, there is another occasion where Jesus says, you know, he's telling them something. His disciples said, you're not going to understand this now, but you will later. And so, I, I, you know, I give that I understand that there are times where Jesus is telling them something which later will be revealed to them. But he also made it clear to them. And he didn't say that here. You know, he didn't say, "Hey, you're not going to get this for another year." But, but you know, my my body is your is the flesh, and my blood is the is the um, the cup that um, you'll be eating and drinking. Now, yeah, I understand you don't get it, but you know, a year from now, he doesn't say that because I don't believe that's at all part of his thinking here. Um, I don't think that's what his presentation's about. His early uh, listeners are understanding this, or could understand this, only as one thing, and that is belief. And you know, I. Peter gets it. I really think Peter gets it near the end because when people, again, they misunderstand him, they take him literally, which a lot of Christians do here, they take him literally, and they leave because they don't understand him. They don't understand what he's talking about. And even some disciples of Jesus at this point, they leave because they don't understand him. They're taking him literally. That's the problem. Jesus doesn't intend for this to be understood literally. He's not talking about literal eating and drinking. He's not, that's not at all what he's talking about. He's talking about belief. And so they leave him because they don't understand. But he turns to his, his, probably his closest disciples, the 12, and he says, well, are you going to leave me too? And um, Peter speaks up. And he said, his answer is, well, to whom, we go? to whom can we go? I mean, you have the words of life is what he said. Uh, and it's interesting. He said, also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ. <laughs> he got it. He got it. He he didn't say, oh, well, where else can we go because you have the, the cup and the wafer. You know, we have to eat your flesh and drink your blood. You know, we have to stay. No, he said, we believe. And it's your words that give us eternal life. It's the spiritual understanding. So Peter gets it here at the end. He, he, he gets it, I believe. And, and I think we have to follow suit that Jesus is not talking about communion. He's not talking about the Eucharist. You know... Paul says in Romans chapter 14 and I understand it's a little bit different context but he said the kingdom of heaven is not eating and drinking um, it, it's not what goes in our mouth that makes us pure or even defiles us uh, Roman, or Matthew chapter 7 Mark chapter 7 I'm sorry it's not what goes in our mouth that defiles us and I don't believe it's what goes in our mouth that makes us holy and pure before God but it's what comes out of it um, you know it, it's the life that we live I don't believe that communion will save anybody I don't think the Eucharist and having a right relationship with the church through the Eucharist is going to save a soul out there because a person can go through the motions they can stand in line they can get the wafer they can drink the cup and then they can go out and live with a heart rebellious towards God how in the world is a person who has a heart rebellious towards God going to be considered saved Nowhere, nowhere would scripture ever support that and so communion doesn't save a person What saves a person is a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ by doing what He's asked repeatedly in John chapter six, and that is to believe. Now, someone might say, "Well, what's you know what's at stake here, Dane? Uh, if, If I believe that the that the Eucharist is the body and the blood of Christ, or I believe it represents the body and blood, what's really at stake?" And that's a great question. I'm not sure I can answer it, but I'll say this, as far as I can understand, nothing's really at stake. I don't see a a, a particular sin attached to believing that the the elements are representative of his body and blood, or that they are literally his body and blood. I I will say this, it's, it's it's not about the elements changing to become the body and blood. It's about us changing to be like Jesus Christ. That's the heart of this whole thing. It's submitting our will, submitting our life, our heart to Him and making Him the Lord of us. It's not about what goes in our mouth. It's what we live. It's who we are in Jesus Christ. And with that, I will close another podcast. Thank you for joining me and I hope to see you next time on the thinking Christian.